0: Welcome to Pathless Podcast. I'm Ben, your host, here with the second wrap-up, part two of season one of Lightlessness, our fifth edition campaign. Sorry for the delay in this episode. We had hosting issues that are now resolved and should be for the future. Players arrive safely in Croach. Croach is the town of the Dragonborns who live in the Veyrin Mountains. Notch is reading Traversing Trails and Mastering Mountains, while Baybreeze reads about Ice Creams of the North. The town is ruined, with bodies everywhere protruding an awful stench. Whoever was left alive here did not clean up anything before leaving. The bodies are missing most of their flesh, as if eaten by animals. Mitha has no clue where the scale of Morin is. Walking through the town, Babries inspects the dead, and sees that some appear as though they've been eaten by wolves. Morva denies that dolphins could have done this, and shares he was locked in a stone gatekeeper's area during the slaughter, but it was the humanoid beast that killed his people. Morva shares the skill is likely the skill of his great ancestor Morin. Mitha asks if the dragonborn people have a place where they keep all their valuables, to which Mitha leads the party to the keep. Morva or Morva leads the party to the keep. Morva hears a clicking in his head while walking over and up the stairs to the keep. The entrance to the keep is wide opened and destroyed. This will be Morva's first experience entering it. It is an opening into the side of the mountain, and upon walking inside the players realize it is in in its entirety one thirty foot by twenty foot room. Morva is disappointed in this, and the players choose to investigate. Quarian notices mark on, marks on the floor from what was likely a table and chairs moved about in the room. Morva studies the stone and sees that the walls are hewn straight out of the mountain. There are vertical seams either added for interior design flair, or showing some unknown remnant of purpose for this construction. Babies looks for bodies and finds dried trails of blood that all start in one side of the room and lead out to the front of the keep. Checking the walls, Notch notices a disparity of color the size of a dot, directly from the door. The stone feels no different where the discoloration is present. Notch finds that the point makes a different clang noise when hit. Quarian wonders if this was the mark where the scale was previously hung. No one can be sure if this was the case. Morbid takes his hammer, two-handed, and tries to smash the wall. His hammer makes no big change to the wall. Babrys comments that the seams may be from the removal of the wall, then reinstallation over top of it. Notch creates slight tremors in the stone by casting Thermaturgy and sees that this wall is indeed different from the rest. Baybreeze almost finds handprints on the walls, but then rolls in that 1. Mytha sits down and begins inspecting everything that they have related to the ritual. When she pulls out the Moonstone, the light from behind them focuses through it into a beam on the floor. Notch sees this happen and refocuses the beam on the dot on the wall. Nothing happens. Mytha warns slash informs players that a full moon is going to be tonight. During this, Morva again begins to hear a clicking inside his head. The party waiting for nightfall, Morva decides to take a walk through his town. Walking past a torn-down home, he hears some debris fall inside. The room looks empty upon inspection, but Morva begins ripping apart all standing furnishings. In the process, he reveals an older male wearing a red and black bandit outfit similar to those worn by the invaders in Unity. Morva roars at the man, who then fires a crossbow at him and misses. Morva scares him into putting down his crossbow, then knocks the man out in one hit with his hammer. He then drags the body back to the keep and hears an annoying and continuous click that is getting more frequent in his head. Baybreeze ties the man up, puts a dirty sock in his mouth, and then uses magic to create the illusion of a hole in the ground. Among the man's possessions is a beast pendant identical to Morva's, and a pouch full of teeth. They slap the man awake, and during this, the tapping gets to Morva so much that he audibly curses the tapping noise. Notch asks what he is talking about which Morva then explains are new uh, tapping noises in his head that have started when they got here. The party rolls out concussions, then resumes interrogation. They ask him if he was looking for the Moonstone, the man in red and black, and if he is alone, which he doesn't answer and keeps averting his eyesight from them. Babrius takes his dagger towards the man, but is stopped by Corion, who states that ultimately the man is in charge. who is in charge legally of this region is Morva, as the Dragonborn's land was never accepted under Felicia's control. The man states... They will come for me," anxiously. Given the man's lack of compliance, everyone starts looking towards the pit. Then Morva picks up his hammer and gets ready to smash the guy. Corian reminds Morva that the uh that he thought the hole was there to kill the man. Morva shows he wasn't aware of this and puts down his hammer. The man, now truly scared, asks to die with his pendant, claiming he isn't allowed to let it fall in the wrong hands. Further questioning shows he doesn't know Mytha and his people don't have the skill of Morin. Baybreeze asks if they can kill the guy, and Notch telepathically tells him, kill him, in quotes, which I voted can't be translated telepathically. Baybreeze agrees that he heard a go-ahead-and-kill-him-anyway from Notch. Everyone looks to Morva for a final word, who raises his hammer, causing Corion to question the purpose of the hole one final time, as Morva gains some vengeance for the death of all his people. Baybreeze throws the body outside, and Morva hears a lot of tapping. It is louder now than before. Baybreeze suggests putting down the pendants, which does stop all the tapping in his head. Notch picks up and puts on the necklace one, then pockets the other pendant. Morva wants to clean up all the bodies and finds that the task is too great for the party. Morva begins working on it anyway. Corian begins to discuss what they should do and brings up that there are maybe t- uh, two parties other than their own at play here. And the ones that he refers to as wolves who captured Mytha before may have the skill already, given that the black and red colts don't have it. They are not sure which group killed the Dragonborns, but given the pendant... Given the pendant, it is likely that the red and black colt did. Notch believes that this is plausible, but wants to experiment some more before moving on. In the meantime, Morva and Notch talk about Morin, who is the silver dragon he was named after. He claims there is no history books of his people. No one has met Morin that he knows, and they keep no shrine for him. But Morin fills a grove to the east with wild game to sacrifice and eat. Morva believes he was given the divine quest of revenge from Morin, and that he had set him off on his quest. They relax until the moonlight shines, and using the Moonstone, they hit the dot. This creates a lit handprint of a human hand. The players all attempt to place their hand on top of it, then try a dead body's hand on top of it. Uh, Morva is the last to do so, given that he has dragonborn hands, but doing this causes the wall to go uh, push in and then uh, slide to the left, revealing a large tunnel in front of them, as well as shaking and making a lot of noise. Uh, the tunnel is hewn out circularly in a uh, very standard fashion. It looks to be like well done. The tapping comes back now in Notch's head. Morva gets the Drift globe from Corian and activates it so that they can he- head into the tunnel with some light. Uh, Notch realizes that the tapping is following a rhythmic pattern and seems to have some reason in the way that it's coming across. As they travel into the tunnel, it suddenly gets much colder and Corian and Myth uh, shiver uncontrollably from it. They reach an open room with a higher ceiling and a much wider berth. This room looks out into a very large cavern and has a drop-off 40 feet ahead. Within this room, there are five pedestals of stone with very large blocks of pure metal on top of them. Each pedestal holds one block of metal. There is brass, gold, bronze, copper, and silver. They are hewn up precisely to all be the same size and polish. Striking a torch to drop into the cavern, Baybreeze finds it is instantly blown out by the cold wind. Quarian perceives out in the distance something statue-like or different from the stone pillars and cavern walls that they can see around them. Babrius ties a rope off on one of the pedestals to start his descent into the cavern, and finds that it is over 100 feet down. Notch experiments with one of the metals, hitting it hard with a crowbar, and is magically blown back by a force, which throws him into a wall, luckily away from the cliff. Morva takes his hammer to try the same thing, but Quarian talks him into just placing his hands on top of the silver one instead. He blacks out for three seconds, and then awakes teleported somewhere else in the cavern. He looks down and around, and finds his eyes are within a large dragon sculpture of stone. He can still feel his human hands and arms, but not his bottom half. Morva wills the dragon to move, and the stone crumbles off, revealing a large silver dragon. He loses the feeling of his human body as he takes off from the perch, and his dragonborn's body goes stiff. He flies around, enjoying being a silver dragon, and the other characters try to figure out what is going on with Morva. They try to pull his arms off the silver block and are are unable. Morva as a dragon flies towards the players who brace for cover, getting ready to fire as Mitha runs back into the tunnel. Morva talks as the dragon to Babries, who is ready to shoot him. He says hi to Babries and says he is Morva. In response, Babries points to Morva's Dragonborn's body and says, that is Morva, and asks if all the dragons are named Morva. At this point, they ask him who his best friend is, which he states he doesn't have a best friend and all of them are greatly hurt by this. They prepare to fire again. Babries asks if this is Morin, and Morva says, no, I'm Morva, and explains what happened to him to get him to the state. Notch climbs up onto the silver block and places his hands on it. Nothing happens. Interested in trying, Quarian walks the block of gold and places his hands on top of it. He blacks out like Morva did and sees a similar stone dragon eyes um, sitting across from him through the eyes that he now sees through. Trying to will it to move, he is unable. Babries and Notch agree to try it together on an account of three. Babries places his hands on the brass stone, and has the same experience, but awakens as a dragon statue across from Corian's, and is quickly able to break apart free and talk as the dragon. He asks Corian's statue if he is in there, and Corian is unable to will it to speak due to failing his wisdom save. Babries offers to smack him out of there while Corian still feels control of his elven torso up. Baybreeze smacks the statue, breaking off stone, that has not, but this has not freed him. Notch did not place his hands on the count of three and calls Mytha over to place her hands on the copper one, while he will place his hands on the bronze one. Mitha looking at the limp and rigid bodies of Morva, Babries, and Corion, worries that this is a trap, and somehow Notch assures her. And somehow Notch assuring her that being a dragon for life won't hinder the completion of their mission is not enough, as she retreats back into the tunnel. The bronze metal gives a slight repulsion as Notch moves his hands towards it which leads him to try the copper one instead, which provides a different experience of burning. He takes off the beast pendant and has the same experience of burning. Pushing through this, his hands make contact with the block, blacking him out and putting him into a statue of copper dragon, which he easily wills to move and breaks from its stone encasement. Corian lifts his hands from the gold block, leaving the trance and dragon eyes, then walks over to the bronze, where he places his hands and successfully takes control of the bronze dragon, breaking out of the statue. The home base where the character's actual bodies are becomes referred to as the fishbowl. Corian chooses to experiment with his dragon body and finds that he is able to use a repulsion breath. They all meet at the fishbowl and discuss exploration of the cavern. Headed north into the cavern, they find a gargantuan door with four circular seals of dragons upside down. There is a fifth larger seal below the dragon seals that has an hourglass shape inscribed upon it. In front of the door is a much larger version of the metal-holding pedestals that the player's bodies are currently standing at, except without anything on top of it. Notch and Quarian discuss staying as dragons for the rest of their probably extended lives. They ignore the door and look through more of the cavern. Notch locates a small hole in the wall, three feet in diameter, that he looks into to see that there is dirt behind. The hole still continues through the dirt and shows another pedestal the same size as the one in front of the large door with seals, which is sitting in a room of stone. Talk of using a player character to crawl through the hole leads to Baybreeze attempting to will himself back into his body, which he is unable. They try to get Mitha, who refuses to climb on the dragons. Notch as the copper dragon spits acid on the wall, which removes the stone, but leaves the 40 feet deep packed dirt. Morvaz the silver dragon tries to clear away the dirt, but within six seconds... The door, dirt magically replaces itself and closes the hole. Babies flies back to the large door and checks the pedestal. He sees that there are large lines outlining the base of the pedestal. Mura flies around the floor and notices a patch of floor that looks false. He falls directly into it from flying, breaking through. He finds another pedestal, but this one is encased in solid ice. Coring discusses his powers as a dragon with Notch, then attempts a repulsion breath at the dirt and blows all of it to the side, which Notch then darts in to grab the pedestal, but is unable to pull it out. Corian suggests sitting on the pedestals. Baybreeze continues to explore the north wing of the cavern when Morva finds him and brings him to the ice pedestal. Baybreeze as the brass dragon uses his fire breathing to melt the ice while Morva flies down and attempts to pull the pedestal out, but uh, does not quit trying until the ice forms around him, trapping him in it. It doesn't hurt him, given his immunity to cold. Notch asks Corian to repulsion again the dirt, and this time he flies into the pedestal and sits on it, causing it to depress into the floor. Corian asks him to stay there for now, but Notch asks to come out to investigate further. Notch believes that the four seals represent dragons sitting on the stools. Corian goes searching for another and finds strange noises noises, uh, near the gargantuan door in the north. Notch finds a metal disc that is flush with the stone wall. He brings everyone over to show them. Notch tries to acid-breath it, which does nothing. Baybreeze offers up the idea of lightning, which Reed as the bronze dragon uses his breath for. A pedestal comes out of the wall, then within 12 seconds goes back into the wall. The characters set up Notch on the pedestal down in the dirt tunnel, Morva on the one in the ice, and Babry's gets ready for the one uh, in the front by the front door while Quarren goes to the pop-out chair with electricity. When Babry sits on the one in front of the gargantuan door, the hourglass flips along with two of the seals. The third seal flipped, but quickly turns back upside down as Quarren's pedestal retracts back into the wall automatically. Babry's finds that getting off the hourglass, it stays compressed for an additional 15 seconds plus the sign time that he sat and waited on initially. When the pedestal in front of the door pops up, all the other seals flip upside down. Quarian asks Babries to sit on the electric wall chair to see if it would stay out for him, but it still went back into the wall after six to ten seconds. Babries finds an illusory wall and hastily enters through it into a tunnel of trap horrors that guillotine a tip of his tail off and hit him in the side with an axe. The sound amplifies greatly when going through the illusion of a wall Bringing Notch over, he inspects carefully a gear-ridden board on the right wall when first carefully entering through the illusion. He sprays acid breath, destroying the gears, which stops all the traps, Enters a pedestal at the end. The gears magically form back in six seconds, and the trap continues. They press Morvis again in the ice, then send Bay Breeze to the dirt tunnel. Notch gets the pedestal in the trap hallway, and then Corian sits on the hourglass, uh, taking time over to get to the electric chair, causing all seals to flip and then the gargantuan door to start making shifting mechanical noises until it unlocks itself and swings open there's a whirling noise and magical darkness within the next room and a voice booms out of the darkness in Draconic saying thank you my brothers for freeing me i am mylanth of nilu as he moves out of the darkness they see a huge black dragon with green bulging veins he claims he is from the shadowfell plane he is unaware of a dragon scale a jester has mocked him during the time he was locked there referring to himself as moron That's the jester referring to himself that way. He would like to leave this cold place for a warmer climate. Baybreeze recommends Piazza. Quarin asks why he was imprisoned here. Mylanth claims a portal was opened for him from his plane that he traveled into to find himself in this prison. With the portal closing behind him, he did not open the portal and was called to go through the portal by uh, an unknown person. That person who called him there did not meet him on the other side. He is unable to polymorph into something smaller, as Baybreeze's advice since it is the only way out that the players currently know of through the fishbowl, he also agrees to not eat any bodies he finds, as a thank you to them for freeing him, and also because it is not his purpose in being here. Morva asks what Moron said to him, which he claimed were jesting such as, I was sent here to bring the night, but I can't get out of this room. Notch asks if this was his purpose, and he states that he was sent here to bring make the land darker he claims moron is a highly magical and teleported in and out of the prison and that the room is full of moron's collections which are human creations and inventions stacked in hundreds of piles to the ceilings the players show no interest in taking any of these valuable things from the stacks back to the fishbowl as they let mylanth fly away to destroy felicia a man dressed as a jester with big puffy white pants and silver and black hair puffs in with a white smoke behind him he introduces himself as moron the players claim If he is not the dragon they are looking for, then they have no interest in him. He claims he does have what they are looking for, information. But Babries cracks him and says that they are looking for a scale. A magical fanfare plays in the air as he summons a large metal box, which he weighs Babries on, saying he has granted him his desire. Corian asks about the scale of Morin. Morin asks why he would want such a thing, to which Corian claims he is on a quest that he can't figure out how he's gotten on except by several near disasters and the need to write mistakes along the way. Moron's advice for him is that he stops adventuring soon, as his time as a royal will be cut short, and he should probably spend time with his family. Corian values his honor higher than his family, which the Jester says is probably a healthy viewpoint given his future. The Jester then moves over to Notch, who he claims needs a girlfriend. Notch says that this isn't a priority. He corrects himself that Notch has a girlfriend, but that he needs her. The party speculates if this is Mytha, then it is shown to be regarding the Blue Fairy from the Cove who is very sick morva butts into the conversation at which point moron admonishes him for having knowledge of a healing water by not sharing it with his friends morva remembers magic arena which he doesn't elaborate on just states that there are that they are there for the scale Baybreeze is addressed as having two wives he then refers to them as besti- uh, moron then refers to them as bestial companions which bay realizes is his horses Moron states that one day he will only be able to pick one, so he will need to be prepared to choose after he collects two more. Morva asks about the red dragon they freed, to which they are told he has already escaped and now is not the time to worry about that. Moron does add that he was taunting Mylanth because he was an evil dragon and he should not have gotten out. But Moron can't get in the way of the party's choices. Baybrews again asks about the scale, but the jester asks for entertainment first. Bay tells a funny dad joke, granting him knowledge of how to free himself from his dragon body in the riddle. Should there come a time when you want to go home, all you need to do is put the dog away, then lift your hands. Moron claims he is a master of silver and starts juggling masterfully five silvered short swords. Morva shoots a breath of cold at Moron, thinking it would be funny, but Moron appears unaffected. Unaware of what to do, Mylan suggests slapstick humor. To Which Morva attempts to slap Moron, but he dodges out of the way and claims that the audience is not hit in slapstick humor. Morva looks to Corion, who steps away from him. Notch smacks Morva in the back of the head during this, then grabs him by the tail and flies him up into the air, spinning him continuously until he lets go of him to throw him down at Corion. Rolling a that one, though, Notch ends up letting go of Morva too late and slamming him into the wall instead of down at Corion. This pleases Moron. Then he looks to Corian for his final entertainment. Corian claims he entertains in other ways, which makes Moron create a dragon-sized, dressed dinner table. He sits at one end, and there's another seat at the other end of the table, made for a dragon. Corian states he meant chess. Moron shakes his hand away, removing the table, then summons a horde of a hundred ice mephits to fly into the back of Corian, asking him to stay very still during the whole entire process, or he may get hurt. They pick up Quarion and start carrying him up into the air, then around the room. When Quarion does nothing, Moron has them start attacking him. All over, which Korion then calls down rather calmly that he is under assault. Moron gives up and b the ice mephits, causing Dragon Quarion to plummet to the ground, doing nothing to stop his fall. This pleases Moron, who gives them a very large metal platter with a roasted pig underneath the lid for all their hard work. He then tells them that they may want to hurry up to their bodies as they are under attack. When asked one final time about the scale, Moron, um, the scale of Moron, he points towards the fishbowl, claiming it is in there. He says Morva had it the whole time in his knapsack. Bay Breeze is very kind to Moron. Moron is pleased with this and asks what type of blade Bay Breeze prefers, then puffs out with after getting the answer. He reminds them in a voice within the cavern to do good, not evil, while he is away from them. Babries wonders how they will get back to their bodies, which Corin explains should be as simple as going back to their original perches and then pulling their bodies' hands off of the metal blocks. Babries gets back on his perch first, which is on the way to the fishbowl. He returns to his body to find four red and black bandits, one at each limp body, with a knife at the player character's throats, and Mytha being held by two large humanoid rats. Mytha is screaming at him, seeing he has now awakened, asking where he has been and claiming she had been calling for them forever. Morva stays in dragon form and attempts a paralyzing breath cone, affecting, effectively paralyzing Notch's, Corian's, and Morva's actual body as long as one bandit. Babries disengages out of the bandit's threat and reaches for his rapier to find an ex- exquisitely forged silver rapier that has replaced his old one. Babries stabs a were-rat on his way towards Mytha. This causes the other were-rat to let go of Mytha and attempt a bite and greatsword swing at Babries, hitting him only with the sword. A bandit stabs Notch's limb, uh, limp-paralyzed body. A bandit and the wererat that was stabbed miss their attacks against Baybreeze. The were then swings a reddened scimitar, making contact with Baybreeze and burning his flesh. Corian attempts a lightning breath line that decimates one of the bandits fighting Baybreeze and burns a hole through the other were with a greatsword known as Gerolf of Blood. Corian tells the mortals to cower, causing them to be shaken. Morva gets back to a statue perch to find that he is unable to move his arms off the metal block given his body's paralyzed state. A bandit escapes down the tunnel after the remaining were-at-petra warns that retreat will deny him the chance of ever being changed. Notch bites at the bandit who stabbed his helpless body, devouring him in dragon form, then throws his claws at the remaining bandit, splattering his body up against the wall. Morva's body is now dirtied with blood. Petra bites Babries for 5 damage, then misses with his scimitar. Corian flies back to his post, and Morva stays on his as well, waiting for the bodies to become unparalyzed. Dragon Notch chomps a bite out of Petra. Babries stabs Petra in the lung, killing him, then walks over to Mitha. Mitha refuses to acknowledge that the players were dragons, and states that she saw a red dragon, Mylanth, fly by. The bandits were there, waiting for 10 minutes before they arrived. They took the choker and moonstone, so it's good that they were all killed and didn't get a chance to leave with it. Corian and Morva gain control of their bodies again and return to their forms, but Notch does not. He flies down where they believe Mylanth was headed to find a hole burrowed through the side of the mountain. When he leaves the mountain, his body begins to turn back into stone, and he stays within it as he plummets to the ground and breaks into pieces. He wakes up in his tiefling body and takes massive mental damage for that death experience. Morva checks his knapsack and finds that the scale was in there surprisingly. Notch asks to be led to the healing waters, and shares knowledge of his fairy. Mytha summarizes that all they need left is the Gladiolus Tristus flower, and asks if the other players are prepared to fight lichens as they get closer to their goal. Baybreeze loots Petra's red scimitar, two talk stones from the Wererats, a parchment with a moon seal on it, and the, and notices that the two Warrats have a brand of sword tips on their upper chests. The parchment is written in a secret language, which Notch is, Notch is able to read given a class ability. It reads, Seek the Moon Touch Witch. She is traveling with a scruffy halfling, her horned and tailed demon lover, a half-elf who's dressed up like a noble, and we believe they've obtained a gray pet dragon. It looks like a dragon born from Croach, but as we all know, th- uh, there are none left alive, so this is unlikely. Take all the items from them and bring only the Moon Witch alive. Dispose of the other bodies as needed. The Scale of Morin has still not been found at the Varen Mountains. We have spies who will be using Tap Talk to send word if something shows up. Please send a five-tap descending if you find information on the scale. Una was last seen heading southeast. His pursuers followed him into the mute wood, where neither he nor the pursuant have escaped. We have sentries surrounding in case anyone comes out. Take him dead or alive upon sight. See sketch. Uh, the sketch shows that Una is a very old and worn tiefling. He wears what looks like a sombrero hat, but it has lots of mechanical parts in it, and he has large goggles that are draped around his neck with a left eye that looks to be just an empty sphere. The final item on the letter is, the lichens of Light are being monitored and do not appear to be a threat. They are still searching for the Moon Witch. Please do not engage or capture unless given direct orders from a Razor. Morva leads the party to said Magicure Arena, which is the lake that gives, and claims that there is no known healing power of the lake, merely that it was the birthplace of Morin. They arrive at the lake, which is frozen for the first three feet. Moira smashes a hole in the ice, and the lake below is full of fish, which Babries decides to take a barrel and put a ration in it and lower into the water to collect fish. The water is ice cold, and Babries hands a vial to Notch, which he tries to give the fairy to drink. It doesn't seem to make any difference. Mitha is asked about healing and shares that her healing is innate and something she was born with. Corian starts a fire to the side, and the barrel comes out with 40 plus fish. The fish are cooked, and Notch heats up some of the water and dips the fairy in the water. This does nothing. Notch chooses to submerge his hands and the fairy into the lake itself through the hole. This brings a silver hue to her skin as she awakes yelling in abyssal, and Notch pulls her out. She asks him why he did that, and shares her name as She asks about her craft, and asks if it can be recovered. She states it was supposed to set up an, an, an environment for her to live in upon landing. Notch tells her it must have not worked, and she admits that it probably did not, given that she never awoke. She decides she would like to travel with Notch, and twists her body up into a ring that she then slides onto Notch's left ring finger. They're married, and Notch gets a bonus plus four to his charisma, up to a max of 20. Characters get ready to head down to tr- the Trinada to get back to Felicia Main in hopes of finding the flower. Mytha states she has no idea where it would be. They find a shack and small encampment built on the side of the large river with a dock. They meet a typical Greyjall that asks if they are from the country above Felicia and is truly surprised to see people come down from the north. The gray jaw tells Morva to get cleaned up in the river, not realizing his scales aren't aren't just dirt and junk. Notch gives a quick recap to Babries of the nation's history, which we will recount more in, de- in detail later. Baybreeze wants a tavern in bed, unable to find either, he finds that he could get these on the ferry if they wait. A ferry running up the wh- river using forge docks. A ferry worker gets off and comments that more of it should be cleaned up. Stones get loaded up on the ferry, which the players help with, except Corian and Mytha, who get on with their gender and gold, not necessarily in that order. They gain free passage for helping load the boat, then head south for eight hours to Galdehan for- Farm, which is a large farm with hundreds of pure elf workers. Corion's cousin Rog sees them get off the boat when they arrive and says hello to him and his companions. He gets them food and asks Corion to come check out the farm and see Yiren if he has time. Corion agrees to go see Yiren. Notch and Morvis stretch their legs and talk to farmers, and Myth and Babri stay on the boat. Corion sees Yiren, who is his grandfather, sitting by himself at a table, looking incredibly old. Corion calls out and Rog informs him that, th- that their great-great-great- great grandfather's sight and hearing are pretty much gone. Quarian is told that Yiren isn't very kind and to not worry about trying to communicate with him. Quarian pats Yiren on the back, and while trying to walk away, Yiren uses a wooden wand from under his arm to cast a wild shape spell that turns Quarian into a badger. Rog yells at Yiren, who laughs with a toothless grin. Badger Quarian climbs up the table and gets in Yiren's face growling, to which Yiren points his wand at Quarian's nose. Rog comes over and picks up the badger and apologizes, ensuring him that Yiren's magic is strong but will wear off, and takes him back to the ferry. Karin is unable to speak anything other than badger talk. While this was occurring, Babries, who was trying to nap in his room, hears a banging on the door. He gets up to let Mitha in, who claims that the men of the ship are pigs, and thanks him for letting her in. Babries considers for the first time that rivermen may be more have more carnivorous needs than seamen. He plans to go back to sleep when Mitha asks him why he is traveling with the group. He claims he is part of the crew and is looking for these horses. Mytha claims she has a gift for him, but needs him to swear secrecy to her for what she is about to tell him. She hands him a glass jar that has a horse standing up, made of water within it. The water moves and slashes while moving in the jar, but the horse keeps its shape aside from rippling. She claims she always thought it was a nice magic trinket, and was from her life before she was captured, but no longer needs it for her future, and knows Baybreeze would enjoy it. She says that she is part of the ritual that will occur at Hicks, and she will need Baybreeze to ensure that no one interrupts it. She believes she will end up having to be sacrificed, but as Baybreeze pushes further, she claims that the writing only calls for the blood of a moon-touched one, which she believes she is. She elaborates that if a little bit doesn't work, she will be giving it all, and she has nothing left to live for anyway. Baybreeze thanks her for the horse and agrees with her deal. Notch in the field asks the farmer about the gladiolus tristis flower. He states that it is a very rare flower and that they won't find them around the farm. They used to grow rather commonly throughout Felicia before the forge tore up the land He expresses disdain for Murdoch, who poisoned the land, especially in Fawcassir. If no one has it, then the king would, as he keeps gardens at the capital. Murdoch is the great forger who founded Felicia as a country and brought Forge to the land. Again, more on Felicia's history later. The farm is obnoxiously organic. Morva travels through the ship to the smokestacks to see how the Forge moves the boat. He gets to the forge room, which is very hot, and men are shoveling stones into for- furnaces. He introduces himself as a dragonborn to a greyjaw, who says that Morva is the type who said his people couldn't stay in this land. Morva leaves without breaking anything or pulling his hammer. Rog drops off Badger Corrion with Baybreeze. Notch talks to Corion telepathically. Baybreeze takes the one and only bed. They arrive in the morning to Marisi Keep, of Duke Penlod, the father of Corion. It is at the fork of the Trinata that continues then splits into the Trina. The keep is grand in looks and age. The fields before it are filled with thousands of Felician soldiers, as this serves as the basic training grounds for Felicia's army. Notch is aware of a war that has been going on for the past 40 years against Gog, the land to the west. He wonders why all these soldiers are here. Badger Quarion and team get to the front door and are not greeted by any staff, so they walk in. It is richly furnished, but covered in dust and cobwebs. There is an argument about whether or not to tell Corian's father that he is a badger. Babries, being there before, in his background, thinks to take the party to the trophy room, where they find Penlod cleaning rapiers in the only non-dusty and well lit room of the keep. He greets them happily and is introduced to Notch, Morva, and Mytha, as well as their pet that Babries says is Corion, but he doesn't believe him, since Babries was good fun company last time he visited. Penlod remarks on the beauty of the rapier that Moron gave Babries, claiming it was his own, ...as a way to share interest in it. Penlan asks if they will stay for a week or a month. Babries claims that they need to send word of an impending threat to Piazza... ...that may come from a dragon. Penlan says that th- he would be happy to send word... ...and comments that the war is going well against Gog... ...and that more of his people are, back to- are going to look bad when a dragon attacks Piazza. All this while continuing to ask for Babries' rapier. Mithra reminds the characters, as they are going to check out rooms to stay in... ...that they need to keep moving... They agree to at least stay for a meal. Myth and Penlod start on dinner in the kitchen, as it appears Penlod keeps no staff. Notch asks to check out the Keeps library, which Penlod is fine with, but warns of touching any of his rapiers in the trophy room. All characters reconvene at a large dining table in the dinner hall. They set, they sit and set the untouched table while Babrius collects wine for dinner, and himself. The food comes out, looking horrific and burnt. It appears there is meat only— the characters thank Myth and Penlod and begin eating. Babries explains a problem of werewolves that they are currently railing against. To Penlod, Penlod finds it interesting but is not concerned. Penlod takes a bottle from Babries and gets goblets, filling a cup for everyone, then giving it to each person eating the meal. Babries notices the books that Notch has brought to the table and says, "Should he know of or have a fancy rapier, he would gladly give Notch the books." When Notch says he does not, Penlod gets up and nonchalantly collects all the books and reminds Notch that should he get a rapier for Penlod, he could have them back. He moves the books out of the room. Everyone drinks and finishes their dinner. The drinks, spiked with the sleeping potion, only affect Baybreeze, who starts to fall asleep. Penlod cracks this up to be too much wine, as Baybreeze did drink two bottles compared to everyone else's one goblet. He offers a tour to everyone else of his wine cellar, saying they can leave Baybreeze to sleep. Worried about leaving their friend there at the table, the party picks him up and follows Penlod, who offers a post-dinner tour of the wine cellar, where he locks them down in there, demanding the rapier if they want to be set free. Morva immediately plans to knock down the door, but Notch offers conversation first. He informs Penlod that his dragon-born friend is not easily kept by wooden locks. Penlod offers a change in negotiations, then. They agree that the party needs silver for weapons, so Penlod gives them one wagon of 6,000 silver with two horses, to take to a blacksmith to silver all of their weapons. Notch confirms that the rapier is not magical and adds books to the deal. Penlad gets the rapier that he wanted so bad. Penlad half admits to poisoning everyone, then hurries the party to leave before Baybreeze awakes. During all this time, Corian had been sleeping in his own room as a badger. He awakes after the players are freed and is an elf again. He walks down, eats, and then says hello to his father. They talk of his travels, using a rapier instead of a longsword, whether he saw his mother, and he explains how he came to understanding, came to an understanding about buying Baybreeze's rapier from the party. Corian has no hard time believing that Baybreeze is knocked out from drinking, and they head out with all the silver, going towards Tribeck on the way to the capital. When Baybreeze wakes, they explain to him that they were more or less forced to sell his rapier. Notch shares information of the flower with the party that he learned at Galdahan's farm, at Tribeck, they avoid the sheriff Travis Dorth, and at Market, they find that there is a forge process to liquefy silver, dip weapons, then cool them quickly. They sell the burning sensation as they coin it, flaming scimitar for two thousand gold. Babries gets boots of Elven kind, Mura's warhammer, Quarion's new longsword, Babries's rapier, and two dr- daggers are silvered. Babries purchases two bottles of blue ice. Notch stops at the Thromberg archive and donates the books that he got from Penlod job has read half elves and you he gives a letter to notch that is a week old this letter is from bubble's Keyholder, a writing companion of notches uh, from his background but he had not heard from him in many months notch reads that the gladiolus tristus does well in not a lot of light and many were killed off by the deforestation due to a increase in population cities and forge the king indeed has this type of flower and the mute wood would also likely still grow them as well Babries turns in the joke book, and so you're out of rope. He checks out a fancy jewel book. Everyone buys new fancy clothes with the excess funds. Bubbles is being held prisoner by 124-plus lichens in Quark's here foc- and was able to slip this letter out to Notch. He worries that there is a ritual that should be stopped, and that the recruits of the people are growing. Players go to Fingan's farm to give him the wagon and horses they obtained from Penlod to nurture good relations, as well as a blue ice from Babries. They tell Fingen that they are headed to the capital, to which he gives them five strips of thick and custom-made fabric with a country seal on it, saying that they have some value down in the capital. Quarian believes they are familiar but can't place it. They discuss Bubbles being captured and held. They are unaware how to contact Bubble again since this pass letter was hand-delivered. They arrive at the beautifully manicured and flourishing Felician capital, capital, home of the current king, Boaz Stronghold. They head to the castle main, and on the way they realize that Morva is likely not welcomed in the king's hometown, even if he is dressed well. He gets a room at an inn and stays there. The rest go to the gate and wall that protect the main castle and its buildings. They talk to a guard who says they are welcome to set up a tour to see the capital and inner castle, but entrance to the king's garden is reserved for those who have entry seals, which are only obtained through nobles to which the king has distributed them. They find that they already have such seals from Fingen, and after receiving a list of every noble in Felicia. Babry stuffs this list, given them, into his jacket. Notch and Babry sign up for the common tour, which includes Inside the Keep's Walls, Architecture of the Palace of Felicia, Felicia in Time, A Play of the History of Felicia, FAP, Felicia's Art Project, and The Flowered Ground, The Capital and Its Flowers. They learn that Murdoch moved to the center of the country upon arriving, and his first step in uniting the country was erecting this castle and its walls to protect himself from the ghost king from Samara. They watch a play where Murdoch builds a hovercraft, loads a bunch of slaves on it, rides it across the Tibur Sea unknowing of their destination, then reach a land with a bunch of elves who gladly welcome them. Murdoch warns of an evil ghost king who is obsessed with poison and how everyone needs to unite together in case this king attacks this land. The Dragonborn people are shown to not be willing to protect everyone and unite. The dwarves and the elves are willing to unite and live happily ever after with Murdoch and the rest of the slaves while the Dragonborns pound stone. They next go to the Fleetian art project. The king before Boaz, Kite Thromberg, was greatly interested in, in enculturating the people and collecting the greatest arts from the lands, Tufap, as well as building the Thromberg archive where Notch works, making it a free collection for the people to come see. This history helps note that Boaz is the fourth king since Felicia's founding. Baybreeze questions why there is so much hate for the dragonborn based on the history that he saw within the play. During this discussion, they see a horse of fire that matches the same shape and size of Baybreeze's collection. They touch the encasement over the horse, which alerts a guard to come over. Baybreeze finds he can't buy or touch things here in FAP. Baybreeze tells Notch he wants the horse, and they agree to steal it together. The flowered grounds part of the tour is just looking at flowers outside in the capital. They meet up back together with Quarion, where Babrys tells him of the horse that he wants, and shares that he has collected three, and this fourth horseman will give them all the powers they need to destroy the world. They find when opening the list of nobles that Bubbles and Fingen are nobles of their respective towns. Babrys also knows that he stole his first horse from the daughter of the noble in Piazza. They take their private tour of the king's gardens later that day, which are indoors, and use forge to take care of sunlight and watering. They find the tristis and easily pick the flower then stuff it down Babrie's pants. Notch creates a battle of intelligences with the guide over flowers, which makes the tour last much longer than the normal, um, letting them to stay until it gets dark. When being escorted back to the entry gate to the inner castle yard, Baybreeze hands the flower to the party and veers off. He is caught by a guard who assists him back to the gate, but gets behind the guard and runs off before the guard has a chance to capture him. This guard puts all the other guards on watch. He makes his way to fap, climbs up through a window, sneaks to the pedestal, grabs the horse, but makes a noise as he tries to put the horse in a glass jar. Baybreeze runs out the window with the horse, then runs to the outer wall, which he quickly climbs without being grabbed by guards but is sighted and guards are pouring out the gate now looking for him as well as ringing the town bell. He strips his clothes and runs into a deeper part of town. He finds that this dingy part has a nice alley where he can stop and gain his breath. With the adrenaline wearing off he feels a burning on his back and a strong light is put on him. He turns to find that his backpack is creating a large amount of light and opening the pack the fire horse has burned through his jar and is now consuming his other horse's. They combine together ultimately into a large tornado the size of Baybreeze that attempts to pull Baybreeze in. He attempts to grab the side of a house, but it was not attached, and he falls to the ground being pulled now into this tornado. The tornado lifts him up off the ground into the atmosphere. Guards spot him, yelling and making attacks against him, but the ranged attacks are blown away. He is lifted up into a cloud. After going through it, he finds himself on another plane with a fluid metal being of light before him which identifies himself as Hador, the keeper of elemental artifacts. Hador was summoned by Babris collecting all four artifacts. Babris asks that Hador grant him assistance in stopping the lichens below, but Hador says he does not intervene so directly. He asks Babries to pick an element, and Hador will send it with him. Babries chooses water, and Hador produces a medium-sized water elemental to be friends with and serve Babris. He shares that the elements will turn against him should he forsake this one. He also states that he will disperse the horses again for another collection, and says goodbye to Baybreeze. Baybreeze and Wisp, his water elemental, are transported to a rooftop in the capital. An unknowing amount of time has passed, but the town bell is no longer ringing, and there are less guards in the street. Baybreeze makes his way back to the inn to join the others. They realize Hicks is their final stop, and the day has finally come to complete the ritual. Mitha summarizes that in offering up the items, they will summon the moon goddess, who will remove the curse of Lycanthropy from the land. Babry's demos his king's cleaning service for the bar. Notch brings up his friend Bubbles and Quarks again, but the party decides the best thing they can do is remove his captor's power by removing Lycanthropy. Uh, Mylanth is also brought up, but there's very little they can do. They take the Darius Pass by wagon, bartering with a trader, and they ride through the plains and learn of devil grass, which provides a nice feeling when smoked. Mora plays with the water elemental. Corin brings up his concern that there will not be a full moon tonight. Mytha says she will keep trying and hope that the materials are not consumed even if there is not a full moon. They realize they would have to wait a full cycle given the current moon state. They arrive at Hicks and see that it is largely made up of mechanical forge objects, almost matching the amount of vegetation and animals. Hicks is a stock market farm that is bought and sold regularly and has put many farmers out of jobs. They can't find anyone to talk to, so Baybreeze and Quarion choose to borrow a large contraption with wheels and blades that let them survey. That will let them survey the land. Neither have used forge before and start hitting buttons and pulling levers. Quarion finds a combination that gets the machine moving, but they have no clue how to steer. They turn on headlights, sound a horn, slow down a bit, and then barrel through crops. A man comes running and yelling at the party that is standing there and watching. This man is the landkeeper, Lecky. Quarion finds a way to steer... Then turns a 180, heading back to the players and Lecky, who shines a flashlight like forge, flashlight like forge contraption, which blinds Babries and Quarion. Quarion guesses and stops the machine. They discuss the damage done to the crops, and Babries p- pays for the damage and the silence of Lecky. Babries gets Lecky to take them to their mural and informs of a weird part of the farm where crops don't grow on strange lines that he they think might be the ritual point. They look at the mural together and discern that there are breaks in the ground in circular patterns. The area that Lecky spoke of is a crop of tall corn-like potato plants, and they see that the field is indeed broken up by infertile ground that leads on four paths just from the area that they are entering. Players who enter into the field are attacked by direwolves that move nimbly through the crops without damaging them. There are four of them, and ultimately, all of the yelling and yelling leads Coran and Mytha into the crops as well, The Water Elemental feeds off Baybreeze's battle mind and does exactly what Baybreeze expects it to. These wolves are non-lichen related as far as they can tell. The Water Elemental hits one of the wolves in the balls. Crops were poisoned, burned, smashed, watered, and covered in blood and wolf flesh during this battle. They enter the ritual circle in the middle of the field, which is about 40 feet wide. Mytha offers to heal those players hurt, but not the Water Elemental. They see that there are six paths total that lead from the fields into the circle that they set themselves in, and find a way to cover each entrance so they can stop anyone who may try to interrupt the ritual. They place the four items in areas on the ground in the circle, and Notch hears clicking and informs the players that there are likely cultists in the area. Mitha explains to the players that she has no idea how exactly to do the ritual, but will be doing a ceremonial chant. Morva spots the movement in the crops and investigates to find nothing. After Mytha begins, humans begin running down a couple paths yelling, Stop this. They're headed straight for Mytha and are equipped for combat. Notch can't get words out of them and chooses to attack. They may be a bowling team. Notch summons tentacles that smack the four headed for Mytha. Corian has more coming up his path, which he thunder waves, hitting Notch as well and pushing them back and impaling a couple by spiky potato grass. A guy makes it to Mytha with very little HP. The water elemental, Whis, smashes his gonads, killing him. A purple haze and whirling wind fills the circle. Mytha stabs her stomach, and her blood floats from her body down to each item. On the winds. The moon is filling out in the sky. Corin asks if they should stop this. Babri says let it go through, and Notch, who is so mad at Mytha in current D&D times, says that he's curious and wants to let it go through as well. The items glow different colors and begin changing. Notch summons his fairy, Auknis. She identifies that this is likely an evil ritual, given that it is sacrificial. The moon goddess, though, if it were summoning summoning her, is kind, but she isn't the type who would ask for tons of blood. More members of the bowling team ask them to stop and begin coming up the paths. All members of the bowling team begin changing into lichens as the moon hits fullness. The players attack these men, and Quarian and Notch decide it is time to stop their ritual. Quarian attempts to move Mytha, but she is very, very heavy. Notch attempts to destroy the items, but Shatter doesn't work on magical items. He runs for the choker and passing a wisdom save, he is able to pull it off the ritual spot. It is hurting him with negative energy. At this point, a bunch of red and black bandits jump in out of the potatoes, along with two were-rats. They come out at various points in the circle. Notch is attacked by a were-rat sword. Some of the red and black bandits begin attacking the changing bowling team. Corian blasts a red and black bandit. Baybreeze kills a were-rat, with one blade through the chest, but misses the lung. The red and black bandits jump into the circle to shoot arrows at players, touching items, then move back into the crops. karian is hit by one of these as he tries to move some of the items. Morva leaves the bowling teams that he was attacking for the red cloaks, who are shooting at corion He also protects Mytha, shooting a Kuna Cold at those near her. Notch gets hurt again by the choker and meets a bowling member who looks like some PC shot a ton of arrows into them while they were sitting in jail as a werewolf. Notch armors up magically, then takes an arrow. Re- reacting to this, he turns to the attacker and turns his blood to fire. The cold armor stops the were from hitting Notch, having him drop his sword. Corian kills a few more guys. Baybreeze and Wispy kill more people. Notch is down by a critical arrow. The cultist steals the choker from his body and places it back on its spot. Morva kills two people. Notch fails a death save, and the largest member of the bowling team is now fully likened and runs at Corian. The other bowling team members who survive get up and begin attacking the things closest to them, whether it is Morva or Black and Red Cultists slash lichens. attacks and gets out of the frenzy by running and hiding in the crops. With all the items now back in their positions, they begin to melt down into four shining rings. The moon in the sky, which was once white, is now slightly purple. Mytha collapses to the ground and light fades from the objects. Four more werewolves come in, two werewolves, and one wereboar. DM uses the terms that a knife-ranking Cossum werewolf Picks up a ring where the scale of Morin once was and pockets it. Babries continues to stab people. Morva attacks the man who picked up the ring, who laughs at him from this. He is branded with a dagger on each arm. Corin picks up the yellow ring from which the gladius, gladiolus tristus flower was and a white ring where the moonstone was. Another werewolf picks up the choker of Malar ring, aka red ring. Corin is shot but stays up. Notch passes a death save. Corin is shot again for having two rings. Corin is down by two claw attacks. Baybreeze is in the brush, Quarion and Notch are knocked out, and Morva continues smashing everything in sight. Within the circle, the now madman bowling bully- members are jumping all over the cultists, somehow doing damage with their non-silvered natural attacks. The big wild man bowler, who is a werebear, was held pre- person by Quarion and is now free as he goes down. He runs towards and attacks those near Mytha's body. The knife with the blue rings escapes, At this point all humans are dead and only lichens are left on the field. Babry throws a silver dagger from the brush, sneaky attacking and killing a werewolf. He has his water elemental stay safe in the field. Morva smashes a wererat. A wererat steals the white ring from Corion's body. Another lichen escapes with the red ring, leaving the yellow ring on Corion and the white ring recently stolen by a lichen that is still in the circle. Notch passes a death save, one away from saving himself, Another were-rat comes over and searches Corian's body for the yellow ring, but can't find it. The crazies continue to hurt the cult members. Babri stabs a werewolf. Morva kills the man who had the white ring and takes it back. Corian fails the death save. Five guys are still in the brawl outside of the party. Notch fails a save with two passes and two fails. The large were moves out of the crops and Morva spo- uh, out, out into the crops and Morva spots him, wanting to kill him. The were which is a large, crazy bowling guy. Actually, the werebear, I'm sorry. Um, who was held person by Corian and head of the bowling team is killing stuff. Morva goes after this wereboar, claw member, leaving Corian, who fails a second save with a negative one, giving him two misses. He has one round for anyone to save him until he is pronounced dead dead. Morva gets tossed by the wereboar, then swings and is then swung at by a large mole. Notch passes his final death save on his own. All cult members running run away, leaving the crazies alone with Notch's, Mytha's, and Quarion's unconscious bodies. Babrie's attempts to save Corion but fails. Babrie's goes after the werewore too and finds Morva and him hammer broing. Morva's rage runs out and he is exhausted. He takes a hit during this time. Notch awakes to see that the crazies are dragging away Mytha's bodies and, body and he allows it. Babrie sneak sneak attacks the werewore with a dagger throw. Morva enters his final rage for the day and keeps fighting to take down the Werbor with one final hammer smash. Everin gets back to the circle to find that Koran is definitely dead with his long sword and spellbook at his side. Morva ends his rage and roars in sadness. To this, Moron shows up and congratulates the characters on conducting a ritual for the god of Melar, giving a continual moon for an unknown period. He states he must take Morva to protect him during this time, and has plans of producing for him a bride, so that they can repopulate his sect of the Dragonborn race. The players are welcome to visit. Not everyone has been turned into werewolves, only those who are plagued with lycanthropy. Mylanth has arrived in Piazza. Moron promises to keep Morva fit and trained while he cares for him. He wants him to rule over the Vayran Mountains. Morva asks where his mate will be coming from, which Moron claims he will have to find someone and then make them. And making one is not easy and takes a lot of time and energy. Morva states that he will go with Moron, be friends with and play games with him if Moron resurrects Corion. Moron states his bride may be less attractive if he spends this magic now on saving Corion and asks if they indeed want Corion back. Morva does, so he brings Corion back, but upon life entering Corion's body, he begins to convulse and transform. Moron quickly grabs Morva and takes the white ring from him, dropping it to the ground as well as magically forming a scroll that he drops alongside it. They teleport out quickly. Babries asks Notch if they could, should kill Quarion. Notch states to try slipping the moon ritual ring on him. They do so using the one left by Morva, and Quarion gains sentience, no longer yelling in pain, but still transforming into a were-tiger. Babries seeing that Quarion is still changing, gets on top of him and attempts to stab his rapier into him. It is stated that being knocked unconscious allows the Curse of Lycanthropy to attack the body when hurt by natural weapons of lichens. Corion uses a spell to get double movement. Pushes Babries off, who stabs him one more time as he leaves the threat range. Corion gets away with an under 10% percentage roll that Babries won't follow him. Notch is all alone in the circle as Babries hunts for Corion. He walks over to the scroll, which he p- picks up and reads. Those rings might help your friend out. Each ring seems to have a special power. From the two you have both of which Quarian has. The yellow one will mark an enemy and discern their location any time. The white one gives damage resistance against lichens. You should probably know that the tome you used summoned Malar, god of hunt, chaotic evil. This also summons the five aspects of the hunt who be- who will begin to wreak havoc and chaos over the lands. There is one, the hunt of watch, two, the hunt of weight, three, the hunt of pride, four, the hunt of cowards, and five, the hunt of desire. So you wish to gain a audience with... Maelar, you will have to defeat these five hunts. To reach Morva and me, come up to the Vayron Mountains and use this parchment instead of the Moonstone. Best of luck in all you do, and in all honesty, you probably shouldn't take on the dragon right now. You've got bigger things to worry about. Morva is at the Veyrin Mountains with Moron, Baybreeze is running through fields, Corian is hiding somewhere in Hick's processing plant, and Notch is reading the parchment in the summoning circle with Wispy reading over his shoulder. And we end Season 1 with me saying that Season 2 will be back in October. Thank you so much for sitting and listening to this wrap up. I am very sorry for all the heavy breathing, the change in tone, the lots of liquid in my mouth. It is actually really, really hard to read through all of these things. And we've got a total count of 19,000 words that I read through in both this first and second wrap up. So I have a few special things to talk about, Um, just kind of insights as being the DM for lightlessness for those who are interested. The fight from the wolves in the field uh, that, you know, were coming into the ritual circle was actually extremely complicated combat. Uh, I don't know if you could keep track during the wrap-up, but there were multiple waves with separate initiatives and different tracks of rounds and abilities. Um, During all this time, I did forget about silver weapon damages uh, when I encountered the werewolf versus werewolf combat. So, moving on, I do believe that I'm going to allow natural attacks from werewolves to damage werewolves. I think that, and silvered weapons, will be the only way to damage werewolves in our campaign. Though that wasn't something I was ne- necessarily planning on myself. Uh, another thing is the idea of a moon-touched one. Just a random tidbit is that this whole entire idea for this campaign was based on what if there was someone who was moon-touched. And working from that idea, I wrote the whole entire c- campaign. Um, where'd Mythos Water Horse come from? Originally, all the sort horses had set places around the world that the players could slash would stumble upon when traveling through the world. The water horse was supposed to be found when visiting Magic Arena, but I forgot about it while they were there, and it probably would have worked great if it was lifted up in the large barrel that Baybreeze put in the water. But uh, since I never guessed that the players would do something like that, uh, originally, the Magic Arena, like many other areas, was much more complex, and there was supposed to be this big interaction where they had to dive into the lake um, to like do a sort of side quest. But, uh, I realized as the campaign moved on that a lot of these side quests were going to take up a lot of time and I really wanted us to move the story along and get the players along. So I'm actually really happy that Mytha was able to have it, um, being that it touches on the fact that Mytha did have a life before, including a husband, a child, a home, and by associations, valuable possessions, Uh, all of which is very important, I think, to her character. It also gave me a chance to get the players to explore the ritual a little deeper. And uh, I had expected them to look into it more and spend more time adventuring, learning about the gods it may summon or um, push, you know, into understanding the two werewolf groups a little bit more so that they'd have some choices. Um, But this shows like uh, Mythas Humanity shows what fatal flaw hopelessness can create when she claims she'll do whatever it takes until a god is summoned. So what happened with Achnus' craft? When I refer to Oxen's craft, I'm talking about the meteor that um, Notch saw while sitting on a mountain, and the meteor that attacked the uh, young boy, his father, and their traveling companions. Um, this was a magical stone from the Feywild, which was bewitched and sent off route by the same creature that led Mylanth into Morin's mountain. She was in charge of inc- controlling the stone and its power to create the crystals that were found in the cave, but b- being put under the spell slash, you know, like bewitched, made her unconscious mind continue to control the power of the crystal cove, infecting all the things it could find uh, with her will to survive. And uh, destroying the central control center, which is the crystal she was in, illuminated her control of the crystals, thus, you know, making them break apart for the party. What are the branding on the were-rats chests? So I bring up branding a lot, and that's because I have a hierarchy for the cold of the silver moon, which will have rankings that I hope to come into play in season two. Um, there's different identifiers that the players will find based on what sort of things they find on the bodies of these lichens that they fight. Uh, another big question that I think confused the players is why a human handprint to open Morin's dwelling? And this was actually written with my idea of foreshadowing that Moron is Morin. Um, and when they meet Moron, he's going to look like a human. Um, but you know, why a human handprint to enter into Moron's Cove? Well, Moron's there. So, you know, I'm pretty sure everyone knows the player characters were having fun saying Moron instead of Moron at certain points during our role playing, if you've actually listened to the season. Um, but yeah, that, that was the idea behind that uh a did you know is that the whirling coming from my prison was supposed to serve as white noise so no one could hear the, um what was on the other side of it if they were going to like make perception checks against the stone door and i also wanted to be able to cover for the fact that Mytha would be calling to them while they were dealing with moron um i thought about giving the players a perception check for this but instead it was easier at the end of everything just to have moron tell them that their bodies were under attack so that worked out well what were the DCs for the Dragon Stones? Um, any character could have picked any stone, but Morva would have a DC lowered by 5 for the Silver Stone if he were to pick it, which he did. Uh, additionally, the DC for the stones is based on the XP value of each juvenile dragon that the players could become, gold being set as the highest. This was important given that the players were given an option then and there to battle Myelanth of Nilu as dragons upon setting him free um, why did Notch have an adverse reaction with some stones? A big part of Notch's character that I want to come through through role-playing and the story is that he feels magic deeper than other characters as a sixth sense. Um, this comes across in a couple points. Some of the easy ones that I can think of now obviously are with these stones. And then also when, um, the craft is destroyed, that, um, you know, Feywild craft. Um, so that's his sixth sense. The feelings that he had were related to the associated power of the Dragonstone that he connected with, and served as a way also to prime the players' minds for using dragons with their associated breath weapons to solve the upcoming upcoming puzzles. Uh, the ice mephits that attacked Corian were originally intended to be a story battle. If the characters did not roleplay play well with Moron, uh, they were going to end up having to fight off like thousands of ice methods in like a you know non-standardized battle fashion. Uh, Did you also know that more of his peoples were attacked and eaten by Qasim? They did it under the guise of getting power for their people, uh, given that the dragonborns are silver dragons that are associated with the moon. Uh, Another big part of the story that kind of didn't get put through is that Amis was intended to be a poltergeist. From the very beginning, I kind of had this idea that I wanted to make a character that the players thought was human, but really wasn't. And um, I had meant to make more ideas related to the fact that he wouldn't touch the players or interact in the same way that they could. And um, I did that when he was refusing to grab the uh, rope for the players when they fell down on the thing and Corin was asking him to. But uh, I think I missed out on a couple of chances to do that. Uh, I also wanted to make sure that he was only affected by magic spells, like when his son cast a magic missile at him. Um, it wasn't scripted that he necessarily had to die in that battle. Uh, So it would be interesting to see what happened. But that's why at the end he phases out in the woods because he's finally ready to let go of reality after such an awful thing happened. And um, obviously, if the other people was sucked into the hole, um, it's very unlikely that he was just quote unquote thrown aside. So I thought that was a good reason to have him killed when the meteor first hit. Uh, Did you also know, and I think this is going to be a big one for the player, that i had written in that mytha could have lived and could have summoned a good god um i have a separate second act that i guess the players aren't going to experience where um seeks to collect all four rings and they can use mytha or another moon touched one which is already in the campaign for a second ritual to sacrifice to malar um as well as hunting down the players for their interference um and that, you know, Backup Moon Touch one was there in case second season was that they did not summon the bad god. And uh, you know, Mytha got away or they kept Mytha with them. So that is all I have for you. I hope you enjoy this episode and look forward to season two coming out probably this Sunday if I have the time. Um yeah, ideally this Sunday. So yeah, thank you for listening to Pathless Podcast. This was Ben again. Please visit our website, pathlesspod.com, use the contact link as well as writing us reviews on iTunes. This episode, I'm not going to go for the Demi Downer negative stuff, even though I think it's funny and I find it enjoyable. So yeah, enjoy your night, and thank you for listening to the Pathless Podcast one final time as I ramble on and on and on from all the reading that I had to do for this wrap-up.